Hi, and welcome to the European Tours Life on Tour podcast. I'm your host, Ewan Porter, and today I'm joined by a prolific winner around the world of golf, and he's one of the European Tours Ironmen. Justin Harding, welcome to the podcast. Ewan, thanks very much for having me, my man. Cheers. Well, look, you've got a fascinating story to tell. You've had an, an incredible journey, really. Uh, let's go back to where it all began in the in the Western Cape in, in South Africa. Were you always set for global golf domination or were rugby, cricket, surfing, were, were they the focus growing up? Look, I certainly don't think it was rugby. I think the, uh, the Afrikaans boys back home, they were a little bit bigger than I was. Um, no, I was quite sporty, to be fair. Uh, I played quite a bit of cricket, um, field hockey. Uh, but I mean, at the end of the day, I went to Paul Rose Gymnasium and ultimately just kind of chose individual sport. I found that uh, it gave me the best opportunity to succeed. I felt like the challenge was a little bit better that way. I uh, wasn't overly reliant on teammates, if that made any sense, in, in terms of getting my own success out of it. And um, yeah, it's can't really pinpoint when exactly I made that decision, but um, ultimately just pretty much focused on my goal from about 13, 14, 15, and just kind of went through all the different underage groupings and both on a provincial and a, and a national level and had success and kind of just kept going really, to be fair. Well, I know you played a lot of junior golf alongside Brandon Grace, but who was, who was some of the other young guns in South Africa growing up then? Well, Gracie and I were together, um, George Kutsia, uh, Louis de Jager, there's quite a few of the South Africans, you'll actually find a lot of South Africans that have come out on tour now, all kind of played together at the same age groups, it's, uh, it's, it's, actually, it's actually pretty cool how it works, I mean the younger guys have all now played together as well, but um, a couple names that you might probably not know of that really actually gave me a hard time and probably beat me on a regular basis was uh, Anton Haig, who came out early and won the Johnny Walker back in the day. And then uh, Matthew Kent, um, youngster also from the Western Cape. Matthew was unbelievable. Um, his, uh, he always, uh, I always kind of felt like whenever I went into a tournament back then, if I beat him, you were always going to be hunting for a trophy type story. So there were, there were a couple guys. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, I think just at the end of the day, South Africa is just filled with a hell of a lot of really good golfers. And I mean, we're just super competitive by nature and aggressive as well so it's it kind of suited us to kick on and uh, challenge ourselves at both a junior level and then at a different level a little later on in life look as professional golfers we're very lucky to be able to travel the world and meet some of the people we do and have some really amazing experiences but i know myself i reflect on my junior days they're some of my fondest memories do you feel the same yeah absolutely uh I think back then you got, you kind of appreciated them quite a bit more. I mean, it was you'd you'd leave the house and you'd come home and you'd pick up a trophy or I mean, or the events that we were playing in, you'd win a you'd win like a pack of meat or or a rack of lamb or something like that. Um, so the parents were always happy when you came home. There was always a smile on their faces. It's I think it's also just the fact that I mean, as you're growing up, you're best of friends, and at the same time, you're just trying to beat the hell out of each other if that makes any sense and I mean it was it was rewarding back then and I guess at the same time when you're successful at, at a pro level it just it becomes rewarding as well because you kind of know all the hard work that you've put into it over the years. Mm. Well look following your junior career you, you were offered a scholarship to attend 
Lamar University in, in Houston, Texas. And I know there's been quite a few South African players that have gone through there over the years too. I know Louis Ferreira went there, Darby Vanderwalt. Did did that influence uh, your decision at all? Because I imagine you had quite a few offers. Yeah. Funny enough, I actually didn't really. Um, at that point in time, there weren't really a lot of South African golfers that had, that had gone over and played. You'd had, your, you'd had your stretch a few years before that where... A couple of the guys, Wesley Tucker and Tim Clark and a few of those guys went to NC State. But it was also very much the type of situation where if you had a couple of South Africans at a particular school, you kind of had a route in. But your bigger schools didn't really have their eye on South African golf at that point in time. Um, only really became relevant when we started having a bit more success. And then the University of Texas obviously got their eyes on Brandon Stone and Dylan Fratelli. Um, but yeah, I I had a I think I had an offer from North Florida University up in Jacksonville. Yeah. And I mean it looked like a pretty nice place. It's uh I think it's like the Beverly Hills of Florida. But um no, I uh Darby van der Volt was over at the Ma University and he kinda said to me, Listen, why don't you come over here? It's it's all right. I mean the the town of Beaumont's not exactly special by any means, but the program was very good, the golf course was good and they had a they had a good vision in terms of trying to get the best out of the group. And we had an unbelievable first couple of years with our team. We were hugely competitive. I think we finished ninth at Nationals the first year that I was there and then third at Nationals the year after. Obviously, with recruiting, the team wouldn't say wouldn't say lost its mojo a little bit, but you have guys moving on and um, just added a little bit more pressure on the youngsters coming through. But no, it was a, ultimately, it was a really good four years. Um, Again, it was one of those situations where I was 18 years old. Either I turned pro, know nothing about tour life or, or how, to, how to navigate things. Difficult to rent cars. You're going to have to travel with your folks, this and that. Um, collegiate golf and challenging myself over there was the next step forward, really. Well, you referenced you had a pretty successful career. Upon graduation there, was the initial plan to remain in, in the US then at that point? Or did you always sort of want to go back home then? To be fair, it was either I stay over there or I come back and do Sunshine to a Q school. Because if I had stayed, then I would have missed the opportunity to do Sunshine to a Q school. And then therein obviously missing an opportunity to play that following season in South Africa. So I just, I just came back home, um, got my tour card, had an absolute nightmare of a first year, really. I think I uh, had to, had to pre-qualify for about nine events. Uh, I missed all of them. Um, actually, the first one that I did qualify for was uh, the event that I won. I, um, I got a spot because Ernie, Ernie withdrew. He couldn't make it. He was, one of the, he was one of the title sponsors. So he was, he was obviously asked to play, but he couldn't make it. So I got a spot. And yeah, I went on and won. I think it was Vodacom Origins of Golf at uh, Samola. No, I've already forgotten where it was. Obi. <laughs> Sorry, Obi. Well, your, your record on the Sunshine Tour is it's absolutely phenomenal. You didn't just win in your first season. You won in each of your first three seasons. Seven wins on the Sunshine Tour. And I know you, you travelled to some incredible places there throughout Southern Africa. I mean, how do you, how do you reflect upon your, your time playing there? No, look, I loved it. Um... I mean, I obviously try and go back and play as best I can. Um, but as I said earlier in the, in the show, it's, 
I think um, since I've got off the Sunshine Tour and played in Europe and seen the guys come through from South Africa, I obviously knew how hard it was to make it onto the European Tour, just obviously through navigating the qualifica qualification school and stuff like that. But I think the quality of golf down in South Africa and on the Tour is is underrated. I think it's actually exceptional in comparison to a lot of other places. The only issue is the fact that they're obviously starving for sponsorship and um, and money. So the guys are the guys aren't playing for a a bucket load of cash in comparison to a lot of the other tours in the world. And it's probably the one reason why they they are actually coming out as good and as ready as they as they are. Um, look, it's a credit to Thomas Apt and someone Nathan and all those involved on the Sunshine Tour. I mean, it's uh, it's creating a a very good product and and pathway for for the youngsters. Well, I think that that word pathway is really important because when I see the the alliance that the European Tour have alongside the Sunshine Tour, it reminds me of uh, 15, 20 years ago here in Australia to begin the season, we used to have what was the, the nationwide tour then, now the Corn Ferry Tour. We used to have two or three events um, out here to start the year every year when it was too cold in, in the US. And, and that that went on for a good seven or eight years and the amount of Australians uh, like Mark Leishman for example he was one that came through and earned enough money to get on the nationwide yeah. tour then but there were so many Australians that uh, qualified to play the nationwide tour via that that route that uh, you know it really does offer some terrific opportunities for South Africans and I know a lot of players from South Africa like a Trevor Fisher Jr for example uh, have played their way onto the European tour that way yeah no it's Look, I think without it, it obviously just makes things so much more difficult. I've touched wood. I've had, to, I've, I've had to go to Q school once. It was a nightmare. You go from first stage in Spain or in Italy to last stage, and if you don't make it, you just pack your bags and you go home. Um, it's uh, it's an absolute grind. And then, come to think of it, you get your card and you only get a minimal amount of events. And they're all low purses so you're having to really try and put some finishes together to kind of secure your card for the following year i've always kind of looked at tour schools as like two-year projects um you kind of have to play the first year and just try and put up as as much money as you can to almost exempl exemplify yourself for the following year um i know asian tour was a lot similar to that as well i did things a little bit differently of course i so I gave that I gave the Q school a skip, which was an added bonus. But I mean, I think the same applies for that. It's it's just I think taking advantage of those co-sanctioned events and the and the tri-sanctioned events and the and those pathways that you speak of is just I mean it's it's like gold dust. You if you get the opportunity to do it, you just have to grab it and run. Well, apart from uh, apart from a few co-sanctioned European events and the 2013 Open, which you played at Muirfield, you, you toiled away for eight seasons on the Sunshine Tour and then 2018 won back-to-back -back events in Swaziland, earned an invitation to go and play the Indonesian Open on the Asian Tour, just happened to go and win that. The following week, won again at the Royal Cup in Thailand. You're still the only player in Asian tour history to win their first two events on that tour. I mean, what was the, the recipe behind that, uh, that torrid stretch? <laughs> uh, I wish I, I wish I could tell you because I've, I've been looking for it ever since. Um, no, it's, um, I think I, 
back end of 2017, early part of 2018, I kind of, I was kind of treading water, to be fair, in South Africa. I was, I was competitive. I'd play one week and I'd play well and I'd maybe scratch a win or a top five. But then the following week, if I wasn't in contention, I'd kind of just go through the motions type story. Um, so I had a look at, I'm not a huge statistics guy, but I had a look at statistics. And over the, over the previous five years, I was, um, I was always top five in birdies made. But then I was looking at my stroke average and I kind of figured, well, I'm probably top five in bogeys made as well then, if that's the case. So it, it, was, it was just kind of more of a mindset change in terms of course management and, and I guess working my way around the golf course, trying to minimize mistakes. Um, I had absolutely no idea that I would have adapted it as quickly as I, as I had. Um, I kind of looked at Justin Rose as an example. When Rosie was playing unbelievably, you kind of, you'd watch four days of the PGA Tour and you wouldn't see him. And next minute on Sunday evening, he's in seventh, the end of the week or 11th, um, that sort of thing. Whereas I kind of always in the back of my head felt like if you aren't in contention, you're not really going to be finishing up there. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I just kind of, Kind of stay a little bit more patient when I wasn't in contention and then allowed myself to potentially shoot a, a low round or two over the weekend and, and at least put myself up there. I think, I think I strung together three or four top fives before that two-week stretch in Swaziland where, where I won. Um, look, one of them was very, very lucky. I mean, my friend Lyle, he, he, made, he made a double bogey in a points format Stableford event and pretty much handed it to me on a plate. Um, I still feel bad. I mean, we joke about it now at the moment, but he kind of says that he kick-started my career. I laugh, but he's probably right. Um, but yeah, it, ultimately, it was just a lot, of, a lot of good golf. It was not a, lot of, not a lot of mistakes, keeping bogeys off my card, ultimately just adding up the birdies and, and seeing where it was at the end of the week. Um, the Sunshine Tour then went obviously into a, like a break period, um, winter break, and I was trying to find a place to play just about anywhere. Um, someone mentioned Asian Tour to me, and I was like, "Yeah, okay." Didn't quite think I, would, I didn't quite think I would like Asia. To be fair, um, it was a long way from home. Uh, it's just different. There's not a lot of South Africans. I didn't think there was going to be a lot of English spoken. To be fair, I mean, it, a little bit naive in in its in its in my ideology, but went over. It was hot as hell, <laughs> um, but yeah, I just kind just kind of kept going and found myself in a position to to win on Sunday, and I still think that was probably one of the hardest rounds of golf I've had in a in a in a very very long time. Um, myself, friend of mine Scott Vincent, who's been playing great over in Asia and now in Japan for a long time. And she won Kim were in the final group. And me obviously going over on a on an invite meant that it was win or go home. It was I finished second, I was unlikely to get enough starts to actually put up enough money to, to get a card in Asia. So to get over the line there and obviously secure a card and playing privileges and all the exemptions which go in with it was, was just was just unbelievable. It was actually it, it was that was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and and you wound up finishing third on the Asian Tour of Merit at Order of Merit, excuse me, at the end of 2018. Earned a European Tour card for uh, 2019. You alluded to obviously the the statistics um, that you 
that you looked at at the end of 2017 and tried to implement a few changes there. For someone so talented, why do you think it took you so long to reach a major tour? Were there any other sort of changes or lifestyle changes that you made off the golf course that helped as well? Yeah, look, I think, I'll be honest with you, uh, I did stop drinking <laughs> or socially and that sort of stuff. Um, I think South Africa, due to the nature of the event and, and where they're located, they, a lot of them are on like resorts or out in the middle of nowhere in little bushes to try and attract the, the clientele for the pro-am events. A lot of the events are pro-am. Just try and grab them and keep them there for three or four weeks or three or four days, excuse me. So because we're all also friends, you kind of stay together, you sit around a bry and you have a couple beers and this and that. And I guess George could see how another mate, another mate of mine touched upon it. He, he kind of said, listen, maybe you should just stop messing around and, and, and kind of do it properly for a bit. Um, yeah, so just kind of stop drinking entirely, try to focus purely on golf, allow myself to get more practice in, um, focus a little better at events. Uh, just ultimately a, a minor life change, but what it did was it just pretty much emphasized my, my golf entirely. Um, took everything out of the way and said, right, I'm now gonna properly focus on, on what we're doing here. Um, also, again, whether that had a, as big an impact, it probably did, but you never really know. Um, it's, uh, it's difficult to kind of pinpoint what exactly happened or, or, or how it happened. There were, there, were, there were obviously those minor factors that kind of went in. I mean, I do think strongly that the nature of the way I played the game, especially my first five, six years, which was super aggressive, you're either finishing first or you're finishing 45th or missing the cut. I changed that dynamic completely and I actually found that I finished first more often. That mm. makes any sense. Mm. Um, also found that I was a little bit more consistent in terms of my results. So I could go from week in to week out with a little bit more confidence as opposed to walking into the week thinking, right, well, we won three weeks ago, but the last two weeks we've been terrible. So it's... Uh, <laughs> It's a, it's a difficult one. I mean, we all know this game is, is super hard and there's so many different factors that can affect any given day or, or shot. It's, it's why we all play the game. It's, it's hugely rewarding at the end of the day. Well, it's quite fascinating. I don't know what the Asian tour was like in 2018, but when I was playing 04 or 05, I don't think you would have lasted not drinking. I don't know if no. any foreign guys I, no, not I, drinking. I, I agree. I mean, I could... I, uh, it was water, sparkling waters and cappuccinos. That's pretty much what I lived on for, for a good year and a half. It was, uh, it was quite... Look, all my mates, obviously, they were hugely supportive of the decision on tour as well. They, they gave me a little bit of slack for the first, I would say, probably two months. But then once they kind of thought that I was now serious about it, they all kind of pushed me along. And um, obviously, it, it, it helped that the results were working, which just made it seemed like the, the right decision at the time. So it just carried on. Yeah, for sure. And look, to start 2019, you had, you had a really good start to the year. Seventh, 11th, fourth in, in your first three events. Then went to Qatar, claimed your first European tour win. You won by two shots there over nine players. In a 12-month in a stretch, you'd won five times. You'd started 2018 
uh, number 716 in the world. After you won Qatar, you'd reached number 52 in the world. I, how, what, describe the sense of euphoria, I guess, after winning and you know establishing yourself that you'd arrived on the world stage, essentially. Yeah, I think it took a very long time for it all just to kind of settle in because it was very much just like a continuous movement. Um, mm. Every time, every time I kind of went anywhere, I was playing to try and get somewhere else. Mm. Um, so it was. It was it, it was almost like I had like a constant goal the whole way around. It wasn't like I had set a goal in the beginning and you kind of work your way through it and you map your way out of it. It was almost like there was a road there and you just had to keep following the road. You just couldn't take you couldn't take a turn. Um, it's amazing when I think back upon it because it is remarkable how it went from pretty much nowhere to somewhere very quickly. I mean they were. I'll have a giggle, Mike Tarika and the boys there in America were, were always saying, right, well, he was in Zambia and then he's now at the Masters in the space of like 14 months or something ridiculous. And um, they, rattled off about, they rattled off all the different top 10s and different countries I've played golf in over the last 18 months. It's, uh, it's, a, it's an unbelievable journey, it really is. But it also it, it shows you what pathways those things that we touched on earlier actually can can do for the game of golf because I didn't think it was possible at the time obviously during the process and and as we kept going and as I kept playing well and posting results I kind of knew that you know what maybe I can actually get to these levels uh, always kind of thought that I was competitive and a good enough golfer to compete in the European Tour that was never a doubt it was just the struggle of getting onto it that was ultimately the, the biggest challenge. Yeah, well, look, not long after you won Qatar, I mentioned that you reached number 52 in the world after that win. Well, you reached the top 50 not long after that. That earned you your, your first trip to the Masters at Augusta National, and you finished 12th there on debut at a, at a venue that's notoriously difficult for first-timers. So how did you adapt so quickly? Or, or were you disappointed with 12th, given the fact uh. you won everything prior to that? <laughs> Uh, no, I, you could. I suppose you could never be disappointed. Um, I, I hand, I just, I kind of said going into the week, it was all just about handling my emotions. If I handled my emotions well throughout the week, I would have been okay. Um, and for the most part, I, I birdied the first hole. I said to Alan, my caddy, I said, right, let's leave. We're out. I mean, we've we've come. It's just it's not going to get better than that. Um, so from from that point onwards, I spent the entire week under par. I was never I was never even par at any stage in time. I was birdie the first and under for the rest of the round. So I thought that was pretty cool. And then yeah, the first time I dropped off the leaderboards at any stage in the event was when I bogeyed the tenth hole on Sunday. And I was like, oh, okay, well that's a bit annoying because we always have this T twelve, T twelve, T twelve gets you back the following year. Mm. Um Ended up making a couple birdies and then I think I hit it in the water on 15, which was just a dreadful mistake and made a bogey there, which dropped me back again. And Alan and I were saying, right, well, we're going to have to make birdie up the last. We just have to do it. And I hit it obviously further away than I would have liked, but uh, I poured it in. Um, it was it was a cool moment. I don't give it too many fist bumps, but I gave it one there. That was That was pretty sweet. Walked up into the scorer's hat. The dude says, well played, well played. I said, listen, how many people are still coming to finish? 
and it was Poulter coming up the last and the guys were trying to interview me and all I was concerned about was what score Poulter was making. Um, but yeah, like I putted well that week. I putted well, uh, I putted unbelievably. I found good speed early on um, and the golf, the greens just didn't really intimidate me, to be fair. Um, I know, I think there's, there's times where they get super fast and, and stuff like that, but yeah, I can't explain it to you. I just, I just saw, I just saw the lines, but I think I saw the lines because I had good speed. It wasn't like, it wasn't like I was standing there, concerned about racing one six feet past or this and that. And the interesting thing about Augusta is we've all played it so many times in our mind because we watch it every year. So you kind of know right well. You you hit it there on seven, or you lay it up down there on eleven, or you go there on twelve. Ernie helped me. He kind of said on twelve, you just hit it straight at the bunkers. Don't mess around with any of the flags. Um, and I played twelve in three under par that year, so it was just just a lot of things went right. Um, I mean, I look back and I've made some mistakes. I think I shot level par on on the Sunday, which was a bit of a struggle, but at the same time, also, I was third last group, fourth last group on Saturday with Tiger in front of me, thankfully, because the crowds all just went forwards and not into me. Um, and then third last group on, on Sunday with Xander trying to win the golf tournament. I mean, we were having to wait for the crowds to, to stop roaring while they were posting birdies from Tiger so Xander could putt. Um, look, it was an unbelievable experience in terms of if I would, if I would have explain the two that one with tiger winning and the crowd and the roars was mind-blowing and then the following year obviously covid related with no crowd and and dj when it was it was it was just completely different it wasn't it wasn't the same atmosphere it didn't feel like the same event it was it was a bit odd <laughs> mm. well, look you you mentioned your putting before that's something that's it's fascinated me because with you because in 2019 you led the putts per round statistic on the european tour um, you know, you use a broomstick putter and you've used one for a long time. Given the fact that they uh, they banned anchoring the putter in 2016, was there an adjustment period for you or is it something that came pretty naturally? I actually stopped using it. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't think, I didn't even think twice about it, to be fair. They banned it and I went to a short putter and I, I, I putter right with a short putter, but I obviously putter a hell of a lot better with, the, with a long one. Um, uh, I kind of when was it I won, but again I was having inconsistent results. Um, bit of a bit of a streaky putter, if you would say that. Um, you'd have a week where you hold everything, and then another week where you just don't feel it and stuff like that. Uh, Alan, my caddy, had actually suggested at the time he was working for George, but we played quite a bit of social golf together back home in Stellenbosch, um, and he had said, "Listen, why don't you just go back to the long putter?" And I didn't think it was going to be very stable with it being away. Um, I thought, well, if the wind blows, it's going to blow all over the place. Because, it is, I mean, let's be honest, the long putter is probably a, a bigger challenge in the wind than any other one. It's, mm. a, it's a hard one. But funny enough, I, I gave it a try and I actually liked it because it's got more of a pendulum. Um, obviously, with it anchored and up against your chest, it creates that minor arc. And with it away, it kind of feels like it can be a straight back, straight through, or or a little bit closer to that. Um, 
And yeah, it was just ultimately about trying to get the right weight for it and allowing it to kind of do the work by its own. Um, yeah, it was a good move. It's, 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 made, it's made me some money, so it's, uh, it, it works. I mean, I, like it's not foolproof, it still misses. Um, I'd, like, I'd like to have the putt back again at Celtic Manor in Wales a couple of weeks ago. But having said that, I didn't want Nutch to three putt in regulation as well, so... He deserves it, and it was a bit of an odd one. But yeah, there's. I've made too many putts to really um, take back a few that I've missed. <laughs> yeah, you certainly have. It's uh, <laughs> it's done you the world of good the last few years. Look, you, you you're living in the in the Surrey region of uh, of England now, just outside of of London, uh, with your girlfriend Leah. Is that your your permanent base? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Uh, I've kind of been here for about fourteen months, give or take. Okay. Um, it's nice. I'm ten minutes from the golf course. It's easy. Twenty minutes from Heathrow. It's a little bit from that aspect. It's a little bit closer to what I had in South Africa. Um, in terms of just golf course and ease of travel and getting out. I mean, ultimately speaking, I mean the majority of the world don't really think too much about living too close to an airport. But when you travel as much as we do, you don't you don't really want a long commute once you've already commuted. If that makes any sense. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, look, there's so many wonderful golf courses in that Surrey region and a lot of uh, top tour players live live there and you practice and play out at the Wisley, which is one of the best golf courses in the region. What's what's a typical week off for you look like? Are you resting? Are you grinding? Are you playing money games with other tour players? Yeah, it's, it's actually funny enough it's changed. I mean, you'd probably find three years ago, my weeks off would still constitute four or five rounds of golf, whether it be socially with a couple of the members at Stellenbosch Golf Club or, or my dad. Um, but at that point in time, I was also doing 20, 23 weeks in South Africa when travel was actually mm. pretty easy. Um, I've found that over the last year or so, especially playing the European Tour, my off weeks have a little less golf in them, um, maybe a couple rounds here and there and just a bit of work on the range. Uh, the last, I, I did six weeks now in a row, so I've been back for, this is now my third off week, which is verging on a long one for me. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't like, I don't like sitting on the couch for too long, but um, no, nah, I think first week was, we spent up in Northern Ireland, so we just kind of saw Leah's family. Um, last week, I pretty much spent the week on the couch either watching shows, playing FIFA, PlayStation, baseball, or the, I'm a sports nut when it comes to all the games. Um, but yeah, this week this week is work week, so I've been on the range from Sunday, and I'll hit balls for a couple of hours, and then I'll go out and play nine holes or, or 18 holes, depending on what's going on. But yeah, ultimately... When I'm trying to when I'm trying to get back into it, I I like to kind of play as much as I can. Uh, I'm not a I'm not a range rat. Um, I do like to hit my golf balls, uh, which has also changed because I used to never practice. I used to always just play. Now I actually hit a few golf balls as well. Uh, but yeah, ultimately, I mean, try to keep it as casual as possible. Really, um, I think uh, traveling's hard. Um, it's I, I didn't really I didn't really realize it until you actually made it out onto a, onto an actual main tour, is just how difficult it is because I mean at the same time you're obviously needing needing and wanting to play well, you're wanting to put money in your back pocket. Um, 
I found like there's oh there's doorbell ringing. Um, <laughs> I uh, I, I found that the majority of people we had a discussion with one of the guys at the Wesley yesterday. Um, I said to him, yeah, six weeks. I've had six weeks now, and of which five of them I was probably in the top ten for going into the weekend. And they're just like high intensity rounds, high focus intensity rounds, and they and they're draining as opposed to if you're having three or four weeks where you're finishing fortieth, forty fifth, or fiftieth. It's just not the not the same sort of mindset. So, yeah, I think um, when you're playing well, I think I think taking a break is is necessary. I mean, I wish I would I would have liked to have played Scotland and now London Uyghur, but ultimately I've got to put my feet up and and give it a rest and hopefully come back um, next week with with the same game. Well, given let's go back to 2020. Given given your meteoric rise uh, in 2018 and and 2019. I guess 2020 was somewhat disappointing by your standards, but you, you still managed a pair of top threes in Andalusia and at the at the British Masters. But how much did the, the pandemic affect your year? Funny enough, I don't I don't think it was the pandemic. I think it was I think it was a bit of a letdown from not getting a PGA tour card. Um, I think if I I've because I've looked at it a couple of times and and thought about it. I think the fact of the matter was because I was because I was on that rise as as I was, it just kind of felt inevitable, if it made any sense. Um I mean I was I was obviously playing PGA tour on that exemption category from inside top fifty in the world. Um I had a couple good finishes. Brandon Grace and I played that Memphis event and we well not Memphis, Louisiana. And we were in second place, absolutely cruising. We went out on the Sunday and had a nightmare. I mean, I think if we had finished second or third there, I would have secured my card. And ultimately, it just didn't work out. Um, I went to Memphis a couple of weeks later, played a bad final round in Memphis. I think I shot four over par around there and dropped to 40th in WGC. And just kind of slowly played my way out of that card and then went to the Corn Ferry Tour Finals and felt like I had it snatched away from me um, just mm. out of nowhere. Uh, finished T7th in the first event in Ohio. 7th um, on my own would have got me a card. Finished 42nd in Boise. 35th one shot better would have secured my card. I think I went, I went into the, I went into the, the final with a 99.9% chance of making it. Um, Tom Lewis flew over, finding out that he could actually play, ended up winning. <laughs> so he cost me. And then, I mean, I missed the cut, so I put it on my own and left it with other people. And ultimately, just sat there watching on the Sunday evening, just it all transpiring. Coming down to the last part, Lanto, who's a mate of mine, and we joke about it all the time. He missed about an eight-footer to, to get us all in. Instead, I was the only one left out in 26th. So that I think hurt um, uh, because as I said earlier in the show as well, I mean, America is obviously where you want to play golf. Um, it's where you want to challenge your skills and play against the best golfers in the world on a regular basis. So I think not getting that hurt and it was probably, psychologically, there's probably a bit of a dent for, for the majority of 2020. Um, Having said that, I think if I get over the line in either Close House or, or Valderrama, 
changes the year completely. Um, Renato played really well at close house in finishing that off. Um, I didn't really feel like I had too much of a, just didn't feel like I had any momentum throughout the entire day there. Did feel like I would maybe snatch it there at Valderrama though, but ended up hitting it in, in the trees on 18, which isn't too, <laughs> too difficult to do yeah. and made a mess from there. But, um, yeah, it was, it, it was an odd year. It was, it was a weird one. Obviously we had, we had the COVID break and we had four months of no golf and practically no practice. And we came out in the European tour and Keith and his team and Andrew Murray and all those guys obviously did an unbelievable job in being able to get us back out on the golf course playing. Um, that UK swing was, was, was pretty cool. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's just probably a lot of lackluster slack golf, to be fair. Mm. Um, mm. And yeah, ultimately probably glad that I got through it all. Um, I was disappointed because I missed the three in South Africa at the end of the year. I was injured. Uh, I'd gone over, I'd gone over and played a corn ferry tour event and slipped down the stairs outside the outside the golf club on a rainy day and oh. sc screwed my back up completely and went to the Masters trying to swing it with one hand. Um, wasn't any good. Myself and Eric Van Roy and Shane, the two of us were sitting there on the hospital beds in the mornings. He ended up not being able to go out and I ended up trying and it was a waste of time and I had to, I had to pretty much pack in the rest of the year. Um, so it was a bit, it was a bit disappointing, but at the same time, I was probably motivating as well to make sure that I went into this year with, uh, with the right mindset and try to, try to take, take it on. Well, you started off 2021 pretty solidly. You made three consecutive cuts in Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and Saudi. Uh, no, no real sort of top finishes, and then missed the cut in Qatar where you'd won before. And then the following week, you, you captured your second European Tour title at the at the Kenyan Open. You beat Kurt Kitayama by a couple of shots there. Given the the relatively lean patch leading into it, and then the, the injury at the back end of twenty twenty, did did that win surprise you? It did. It, yeah, it didn't surprise me because of where it came. I'd had success on the golf course in 2018 or no 20, 2019 when Guido Migliotti won. I came second. Mm -hmm. Um, so I kind of knew that I liked the golf course. We kind of had a set plan going in. We had hit a lot of good shots around there, so there were a lot of good vibes and and not a lot of bad memories. So I knew that I would be somewhat competitive. Um, getting over the line, I think I I said it in my interview after the round. I mean, it, it's it, it's hard getting that second one. It's almost it's almost harder than the first one. Um, you kind of feel you kind of feel like right. Well, that first one you've got uh, it's a monkey off the belt, but it's I think it's more the second one which is the biggest monkey. Um, yeah, it was, it was it was just nice. It was rewarding. Kurt and I obviously came through Asia as well. Um, so we've known each other for a long time. We're good mates, and yeah, he kept pushing. I mean, he kept chipping balls in and and making it really difficult. Um, there's another one. I kind of wish I got the next one over the line as well, but I made a mess of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Karen Country Club there in uh, in uh, in Kenya. You referenced you had an affinity for it, finishing runner up there in 2019. It's a, it's a tricky old school layout. Uh, are they the style of golf courses? Do you prefer playing that, or are you you really don't mind? I know some people like the traditional layout. Some people like Bombers Paradises. But what about you? Yeah. I think 
I don't really have a I don't really have a particular preference. Ultimately, if you get a if you get a bomber's golf course, you're just gonna have to try and out putt them. Um, mm. And I feel like I'm decent with that club in my hand, so I've always got a chance regardless. Uh, obviously, <coughs> excuse me. Obviously, the bombers golf course is gonna lend itself towards guys being able to hit a little bit closer than you are, so their chances are gonna be better. But on a short fiddly placement type golf course, everyone's gonna kind of be playing from the same place. It's one where. Again, you just kind of I'd played I'd played it with success. I knew how to play the golf course. I knew where to put it. I knew where to miss it. Um, I do think I'm probably better on that, and that's maybe why I was successful in Asia as well. Because Asia's by no means bombers. You can't play out of the Bermuda rough in Asia. It's just mm. impossible. You have to hit the fairway. I think Kenya is very much similar to that. Um, I think I just ultimately I like golf courses which demand accuracy or placement off the tee um to where it's 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 kind of like a setup it's not just you hit it find it hit it again type story um you kind of always want to play a golf course which is going to reward good shots and and punish bad ones it doesn't necessarily have to be a hugely overly difficult golf course it must just be a nicely set up one sometimes mm-hmm. well you mentioned your uh your close call in Wales at Celtic Manor recently, just last month actually losing the playoff to Nacho Elvira there. But you were seventh the following week at the ISPS Handa World Invitational in, in Northern Ireland. And bo- both of those finishes came off the back of the top 20 at the Open Championship at Royal St. George's. So obviously coming into this break that you're on now, the, the game's been feeling really good. Yeah, no, I've, I've been playing nicely. Um, I think uh, I had a good stretch with... It started in Germany, BMW International. Was playing really well. I think you probably I think I was in third place and I bogeyed the last two holes trying to chase down second. Um so finished fifth there. Uh following week also played quite nicely. Um the Renaissance and I we need we need to somehow become friends. We just absolutely we're just not friends at the minute. Um I haven't figured out in three years I've still not figured out how to play that golf course. I obviously need to now because it's turning into a PGA tour event next year. Um so I'm gonna have to try and figure that one out. But yeah, the open was an unbelievable experience. Um again, very, very good. I thought the golf course and, and the RNA set it up superbly. I thought mm-hmm. that uh it didn't feel like it was overly fiery. Um they were especially um challenging with their pin placements on a few of the days I think as well and that that by that that bit well for me because again as I said I, you didn't kind of want it to be a putting contest you kind of wanted it to be able to okay you know what I wish Sunday the wind had kind of got up a little bit more to where level par was a decent score or one under was a decent score it kind of felt like there, there was a little bit more birdie opportunities out there and I just didn't take take good advantage of it um yeah, it's golf strange though because again, as you said, I've had that run that I've had, and now I've put my feet up, and now it's now the challenge is obviously trying to get back on the horse and do it all over again. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I referenced in the opening you were one of the tours Ironmen. You've played sixty-seven European Tour events since the start of twenty nineteen, and that's with a four-month hiatus uh, <laughs> last year. The top, some of the top players in the world, they play 
less than 20 events a year, you know, not too many play more than say 20, 22. Why do you enjoy playing so frequently? I think I just like the challenge to be fair. I like, um, I think deep down, I kind of know that I'm, I'm decent at this game and I want to get something out of it. Um, and ultimately you probably find that what I have got out of it, it isn't enough yet. Um, hmm. when will enough be enough? Who knows? It's, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you that, but I think, uh, I enjoy it at the same time. It's also, if I wasn't playing any good, then you'd probably find I might not be playing quite as much, but I feel like I am playing well and, and I am competitive and I'm putting myself in contention on a weekly basis or at least try to. And as long as I'm doing that regularly, I'm going to keep playing as much as I can. Um, I think you probably find if we, if you if you make the move or you make the jump to to America or stuff like that, you might find that you play a little bit less. Um, I think at the same time, it's it's just it's just a game I love to play and I enjoy it. And fortunately, my caddy likes it just as much as I do, so he, he's on the bag for the majority of the weeks. And um, yeah, it's I can't I can't really tell you why, but I just I just I just like it. Well, you mentioned before too that. You know, being in contention, which you have been pretty regularly, it, it can be emotionally draining and also playing that much. There's also, you know, it can pose some physical issues as well. So how does, how does your uh, a typical tournament week look to you? How do you prepare? Do you, do you sort of taper off a bit after an event? Yeah, well, if I'll normally always take the Monday off regardless. So if you've played the week before, you travel Mondays, either Sunday evenings or travel evening or Monday morning. Um, You've always got your Wednesday Pro-Am in the back of your mind. So I'll go out and I'll play nine holes here. Or I used to play more holes. Now I don't play quite as many holes. Now I'll only maybe do a nine and a nine. Um, a little bit of practice, work on something that maybe was a bit out the week before, but ultimately not really try and find anything drastic. Um, and yeah, just try and, I guess, go out and see what the golf course kind of, how it wants you to play it. I think that's where I've got a little bit better in in over the years is actually playing the golf course how it wants you to be play it as opposed mm. to you trying to play it differently. Um, in the past, I always kind of said, right, well, if it's a drivable par four, you, you're going for it. Whereas now, is it really worth it? Um, what's what's kind of the best way to, to get the round done? Um, plot your way through golf courses stuff like that so i do like, i do quite a bit of that from i suppose monday to monday to wednesday and then once thursday comes along anything can happen really you never you never know what weather's going to do how you're feeling this and that you just got to try and adjust to adjust to the situation as best as possible how good's it been having the fans back lately yeah very good no i like i love them i uh, i enjoy them um it's it it was a it was a strange period in time when we when we didn't have them around it was it's like you'd make a birdie and there would there'd be birds chirping it would be it would be like odd um we almost kind of used your playing partners as as like cheerleaders uh it was it was strange um i think at the same time a lot of the a lot of the bigger names your your top 20 in the world your pga tour stars i think they struggled with it more than maybe us European tour players who, 
who don't always play with the same number of fans. Um, I think the European Tour, barring your major, major events, the majority of them, they have they have a crowd going with your final groups and your lead groups and stuff like that, where I do find that a couple of the youngsters out on tour, they've probably had the added benefit of not having the fans because they haven't really played under the pressures, which, I mean... I joke, we, Gary King, I mean, do we play golf together almost every week? It, I didn't realize, but the PGA Championship was the first time he played a golf tournament with a fan. I mean, that is, it'd be on the European Tour for two years. <laughs> so Gosh. it's, yeah, it's, um, yeah. it's, it's just, a, it's just a completely different dynamic. That's, it just makes golf a little bit stranger. I mean, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm used to it. The Sunshine Tour doesn't play with a lot of fans as well. So, I mean, it kind of just felt like playing back home. Um, but yeah, certainly with them there and, and cheering you on and, and stuff like that is, is special. I mean, the Open, I was having a laugh. I, I played with um, Paul Casey on the, on the Saturday. And Alan, my caddy, still chirps him. He says, Paul Casey from the UK. And Alan said, no, no, it's Paul Casey from Arizona. <laughs> But the 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 UK, the UK fans loved their own players. It was it was beautiful. Um, it was it's special. I mean, if you if you've got a group and and you know the people out there and they're allowed to cheer you on and support you, it can only be helpful in terms of your own success. Look, I know the South African golfers. You're a close knit bunch. You know the Australians are as well. Um, who are, you mentioned you played golf with Gary Hick, Gary Hicko nearly every week. Who, who are some of your closest friends out there? Who are your your regular practice round buddies? George and I play quite a bit together. George Couture. We um we always play together. We always have a bit of a money game. I've actually got uh, Gary's cash in my pocket. Or oh, I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for it. He hasn't been back yet. He's he's living the dream there in America at the moment. He can he can afford uh, it. Come on, Gary. Yeah. No, you can't afford it. Um, but yeah, Dean Burmester, Louis de Yarker, we all kind of try and play. Christian Beside note. Um, uh, yeah, we we try. I mean, it's div- it's difficult, especially especially with scheduling. It's a little trickier trying to get the right tee times. And some people like to play early, and some people like to play late, and only do nine holes and eighteen holes. So you got to try and navigate that whole process each and every week. But Ultimately, we try and get together as, as much as we can and, and have a bit of a game and a banter and ultimately see who's, who's up going into, going into the week. <laughs> I know your, your girlfriend, Leah, she travels with you to a lot of tournaments. Uh, how, how important, how influential has, has your team been in helping you take that uh, or reach the next stage of your career? Very good. Um, I think I touched on it, obviously, earlier in the show as well. When I was still in South Africa, making that adjustment, family, friends, and and golf club were all hugely supportive, and I probably without them, I wouldn't have been able to actually manage the whole situation. Um, but yeah, from from now this point onwards, Alan Marchetti he's hugely influential in terms of my success on and off the golf course. Leah as well, she's a rock. She's got her own business, which drives her up the wall, but um, <laughs> she, uh, she's usually supportive of my career and allows me to go and play when, as much as I do. <laughs> and um, yeah, ultimately, I mean, you just kind of need to have those stable things in your life to where you can, you can, if things are going badly, touch wood, they don't really turn that way too much so, that um, you, can, you can sit down, relax and, and try and get, get through it and get over to the other side. 
Oh, look, you, you could consider yourself very unlucky missing out on uh, President's Cup selection back in 2019 at, uh, at Royal Melbourne. Next year, Quail Hollow making that international side. I'm assuming that's got to be very high on the, on the priority list. Absolutely. Uh, I can't, kind of played my way out of that team, to be fair, in 2019. I didn't quite, uh, I didn't quite match the results I was matching earlier on in the season. Um, and a couple of the guys were, were playing well and completely understand Ernie's thinking and thought process in terms of his selection. Um, having said that, next year is obviously a special one as well. I mean, it's, it's a team. I've watched Brandon, I've watched George, I've watched Louis, I've watched these guys obviously represent South Africa on the highest of stages. And I mean, you want to, you, you, you want to make the team. It's just at this, at the same time, there's a strong contingent of South African golfers, especially that, uh, that are all vying for the same spots. I mean, you've got Louis, Brandon, who's playing well, um, Christian Besaidenote, Gary Kigo, who we touched on and spoken about. Dean Burmester is right up there as well. Dylan Fratelli. I mean, there's a there's a there's a lot of really good South African golfers, and I mean, can't pick them all. <laughs> no, no, can't pick well, them you all. Don't have to, so. You don't have to. You don't have to worry about Rory Sabatini anymore. <laughs> no, no, we don't. He's actually interestingly <laughs> enough playing in the Czech Masters this week. He's. Uh, I saw that. Yeah, he's uh, no Rory's. He's changed to what Slovakian, so. Yeah, look, credit to him, eh? He he did well. Got himself a medal. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, look, you're you're currently twentieth on the uh, race to Dubai standings. There's lots to play for the rest of the year. What what are your goals for the rest of twenty twenty one? Ultimately, you just keep trying to do what I'm doing. Um, put myself in contention. If I can sneak another win, then that would be awesome. That would be a bonus. Um, I think. I'm not really a huge goal setter, to be honest. I mean, obviously, at the beginning of the year, you'd obviously like to make it to Dubai because that just means that you've had a decent and successful season. So I think with that being wrapped up, obviously, just try and slowly but surely plug, plug my way up, or plod my way up the, the order of merit, um, the race to Dubai, and see if we can finish as high as we possibly can. I think, I think I've got 26th in 2019 or something like that. So try and finish better than that. Maybe sneak into the top 20 or into the top 10. Um, and yeah, ultimately, I want to go. I, I want to go back to South Africa and obviously try and play well in my home events back there. I get, I missed them last year, so I want to go and give them a shot and see if I can maybe do what Christian did last year and just uh, pick up trophies <laughs> each and every week. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've done plenty of that in the last few years. But look, you love playing golf. Thirty-five years old now. Where where do you see yourself in in fifteen to twenty years from now? Yo, yeah, and that's a, that's an interesting question. I don't want to look that far ahead. <laughs> um, no, I, I couldn't tell you really uh, whether I'll be playing golf. I mean, maybe. Um, Darts in the Champions Tour, unless you get into get into America. I mean, that Champions Tour is like pretty much a closed circuit. Um, mm. Hard to get into that. So it's you probably just got to look at trying to get the best out of your golf for the next 10 years and then hopefully just live the rest of your life as best you can and and without any stress. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like a good plan to me. Justin Harding, thanks very much for being on the Life on Tour podcast and we look forward to watching you the rest of this season and the years ahead. Thanks very much, Ira. Thanks for having me.